Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. In the first of a series of special interviews with autistic creatives, John James and David are chatting with Alicia Radich, a neurodivergent performance artist whose work explores the intersection of neurodivergent experience and animist practices. We also spend some quality time discussing John James's video art, which is available to view on his website. Just click on the link in the show notes. Huge thanks to Alicia for giving up their time to speak with us. Do check out Alicia's work via their website. And if you're in the Whitstable area between the 11th and 19th of June 2022, do check out Alicia's installment as part of the Biennale. You'll also be able to find Alicia's work at the Giant Gallery in Bournemouth throughout late June and August. Quick word of warning, this episode does contain rather more swearing than usual. Nevertheless, many thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, I'm David Hartley, and I'm here again to introduce another episode. Uh, and I'm particularly excited today, as this is a very special episode featuring a very special guest. Um, but before I introduce our guest, um, I should also say that we've got the wonderful John James Laidlow also here with us. Hello, John James. How are you today? Oh, hello. Hi. I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. Really enjoying the sunshine and feeling yes. good. Yeah. It's a lovely spring day at the moment. So we're, we're all enjoying that. It's great. Um, it's worth us mentioning uh, the, at the top of this podcast today is that uh, we're going to be chatting with a, a kind of video maker and a performance artist today, but it's also worth noting as well that John James, you are a, a creative video artist and filmmaker as well. Um, you've been a regular host on this podcast for as long as we've been doing it, but um, we've never really talked about any of your work um, in any depth. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be discussing some of your stuff today. We've been watching some of it um, as, as our guest, um, and we're going to feature some of that in our discussions. Uh, and I think what we'll do is we'll put the link to your website in the, in the description of the podcast so that people can pop over there and have a, have a look themselves. As long as you're happy with that, John James. <laughs> yeah, okay, great. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Awesome. And I've just seen your cat appear in the background of your, yeah. uh, who wants to also get involved. Yeah. Um, great. All right. That's fabulous. Okay. But now um, let me introduce our uh, super special guest for uh, this episode. We're going to be talking to Alicia Radich. Uh, hello, Alicia. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm great. Thank you. Good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Um, brilliant. Well, what I'll do is I'm going to uh, quickly read out your uh, bio that's currently up on your website, um, and then we'll we'll start talking about some of your um, some of your practice and some of your filmmaking that you've been doing. Cool. Okay, so Alicia Radich. Uh, Radich's practice manifests through performance, video, text, and sound. Their current research looks at the intersection between neurodiverse experience and animist practice, looking to ways of communicating and being outside of neurotypical late capitalism. Their core concern is remembering a fluency in spiritual connection to the more than human. 
Their practice is activated through intuiting forms of interspecies communication. Um, Alicia has taught at universities on fine art and theatre courses for both MA and BA courses. Uh, they have shown their work internationally and have been supported by the Arts Council England, the British Council and Shape Arts. Uh, Alicia graduated from the Royal Central, Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in 2011 with a distinction in advanced theatre practice. Um, so what I thought we'd do to start is talk about the piece of work in particular that you did for Shape Arts recently which is how we uh, came across you as a, as a creative and a, and a performer. This is the, the video, the short film and sort of performance piece, which is called uh, Quake. Um, now, I, I think I'm right in saying that there are, are at least two versions of Quake. Um, there's the one that's currently available on your website, which is sort of a, a, an indoor version. And uh, there's the one that's on the Shape Arts website, which as well, which is a, an outdoor version, which I believe was filmed in your garden. Um, and I'll put links to both of these in the, in the notes of this episode. So I think I'd like to start, first of all, if you if you would, um, first of all, just describe Quake, like, uh, and what happens in it um, and what it's about. And then uh, if you could tell us how it came to be from, from its kind of first idea to the, to the finished piece. So Quake is born of a sort of very long process and the two versions that you talk about the one on my website is a film of a live performance that had an audience um, at a studio gallery space called vssl in deptford in southeast london um, and this was the live outcome of a uh, arts council national lottery project grant I'd been given um and yeah the one on shape, shape for that project which was meant to be a six-month project but COVID got involved so it ended up being I don't even know how many months maybe nine or ten maybe it was a year um I kind of lost track shape were mentoring me and help and sort of helping me with training um on another sort of tangent of the whole project, which was um, a network I set up for neurodivergent women's um, artists and sort of helping me with training on how to facilitate that, but then also like mentoring me artistically. So that um, one that you talk about on with shape was sort of made and then they sort of facilitated showing it. And it was a performance for camera and the only people there were me, the people filming it, and the worms and the frogs. It comes from uh, years of me training in therapeutic shamanic practice. Um, and this is a sort of something that I came towards through being in um, sort of working with shamanic practice outside of the UK and then getting back to the UK and feeling really um, at quite a different juncture, not being able to integrate it. And then I came across, um, you know, sort of like shamanic, core shamanic practice, which is when I started working with it, I realized it was very similar to my performance practice, my and my art practice in general. And my art practice, I'd always had a little bit of a imposter syndrome around because it'd always been incredibly intuitive 
a lot of people start making their work from responding to a political situation or you know an academic theory or something that's happened in their life that they can talk about before and then building a work around it where my work comes from intuition and quite often afterwards I figure out what it's about that can be the day after it can be like a year after I I have often looked back at work a year later and gone oh that's what was happening in my life then and that's what that was about um so I'm conscious of the fact that you asked me to first and foremost talk about what Quake was about and then the background and I've swapped those things around um (laughs) quite in vain like you know in keeping with what I'm saying about what was it about? It was about um, it, it's me exploring um, interspecies communication and me um, going through that process of journeying shamanically, um, you know, and, and, and starting to really reconnect with animism um, as a way of being. And the processes that, that going through that process resulted in me making this work and so for example the worm dance which I perform in it where I tread um, rapidly on the balls of my feet on soil um, brings worms to the surface and this isn't something this is something that I'd I'd been doing a shamanic journey and uh, I was sort of with some human ancestors and they taught me this dance and when I came you know then I started to practice it in this realm physically with my body and worms came to the surface and I've always had I've always loved worms um I've always been absolutely obsessed with worms since I was a kid I felt real kinship with them um and I used to play with them Um, you know, as friends, and I've always felt like really quite distressed when they are, um, you know, in the sun on a bit of concrete drying out. And I think that's, you know, something really interesting to talk about in terms of neurodiversity. My main sort of my research, if you will, at the moment, is looking at the connection between shamanic practice and neurodiverse experience and looking at how neurodiverse people um, feel things have we have very heightened senses and in that we sort of connect to our animal selves Um, it's not just you know, cognitive logic and reason that we are processing through all the time. And it's not just vision. Um, you know, our, our scent, all of our senses are heightened. And through this, we can understand and remember our connection to the more than human. Um, so, yeah, there's also the sort of element of there being a big hat and wearing a massive hat um, which the brim of it is wider than my shoulders and coming down from the brim of the hat are pieces of string and attached to those pieces of string are old iron nails those ones where there's one piece of metal and they're from the floorboards of my flat I was thinking a lot at the time about you know um domestic uh you know the domestic 
and making the wild domestic and rewilding and mining and the process and the job of worms and the and and our sort of role in that um yeah and so I wear this big hat and as I do the worm dance they jingle they make a sound and yeah that was sort of again another sort of calling to the worms and another calling and another um evocation of sense and then I also sing to the worms when I get really really exhausted I start to sing and and that's another thing I'm looking at in my work is sort of rewilding my voice um and reconnecting to a voice and and looking at interspecies communication and not being in denial that I am a human and I look at things through a human lens and I have human language as well as my predominant language so how do I rewild that language in order to connect to the more than human. I think it's um, it's really interesting that you mention intuition because um, the 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 performance which which was really fascinating. It was like um, the the one you did in front of the crowd uh, that that version. It was very it was like a, a ritual almost. But it was, um, I like the way you talk about how you use the, the framework of animism as like a, a base and then you, you go with what feels natural to you, what, what feels right. Um, and I think, yeah, that's something, that's something that I find really interesting. And, and you know, from, from such a young age, so many of us are, are sort of... Um, told off for how we move or how through not just physically but also through the world you know what what path we take and um yeah that I feel like there is this sort of shift at the moment culturally that in at this moment that people are starting to try and uh, re rediscover what they might have lost through that process like you know of constraint and um, yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting. Yeah, that is, you know, that rewilding very much comes hand in hand with decolonizing when you talk about constraint and what is civilized and, you know, the roots of that and that, you know, you, you can't um, look at ableism without it outside of an intersectional uh, position. You know, we're looking at um, white supremacist, you know, settler dogmas. Um, and we're still very much living with them, obviously, and we're still having to find... And, yeah, the, what you say there about um, re rediscovering, it, I'm working a lot with remembering on that word because it is just remembering. You know, we didn't... Oh, I mean, we could talk about this in itself for hours and hours, but you know what is natural what is our what is are we natural is this our natural evolution in inverted commas like is this where we've ended up who, who are we to say this isn't natural but this wasn't the this wasn't always how we related to the world obviously and you know that brings us quite nicely onto your video actually john james the one what was it called another island is possible 
Yeah, the oh. Animal Crossing, the Animal Crossing uh, yeah. video. Yeah, I was watching oh. that earlier as well. Oh. It's really interesting. Oh. Um, the repetitive motion of the character shaking the tree all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh. that that in itself, and they sort of. I wrote a lot about it when I watched that, and and it's something. What is I work a lot with repetition, and especially with video, like getting something and getting on a, and, and putting it on a loop, right? And there's all sorts of reasons for doing this, you know, getting in like uh, the ritual of it. Mm. Also, like from a neurodiverse perspective, like I get in loops a lot, and so actually, like causing a loop can help me deal with the loops that I get caught in um and working through that but also so, so this loop of this the this what's the animal crossing I'm not into video game the video game right mm, and, yeah. and this little girl figure is shaking this apple tree and around and there's all these other apple trees around it and the other apple trees have apples on them and the one that she's shaking doesn't have the apple on it and shakes it and a leaf falls, but no apple. And then you've looped that so that she just, throughout this 10 minutes, this video, right? It's just shaking and the sound of it being shaken. And then it goes back to her shaking, 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 shaking. And yeah, what that in itself, have we got caught in this? We, we've sort of approached the world as abundant, as, it's, as though it's abundant. And we, even though we know, like, there are case studies and things are happening to show us that it is not, the, what the earth can give us isn't abundant um, without us giving back, we don't, because we're living under the myth of human supremacy, then but we, we still do it. And it's like we've got, it's like, there's the matrix, are we, are we living, are we robots, are we, are we programmed <laughs> Uh, can we not like reprogram ourselves? Mm. Like, even though we know that the consequences are disastrous, um, why do we keep doing it? Why can we not remember, or why can we not remember? Uh, why can we not create a different way of relating? Um, I can't remember how we got onto that. Sorry, what were we talking about before? Rewilding. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. And there's sort of this, this the the need to decolonize, yes. um, and the need to, in that sense as well, decolonize ourselves from ourselves. <laughs> yeah, um, because that uh, it is also a symptom of our of every single individual being colonized by, you know, the sort of neurotypical uh, capitalist paradigm and practice, right? Yeah, definitely. I think I. Because I made, I made that sort of video essay at the very start of um, lockdown in the UK, the first the first lockdown, um, and I think starting to play that game with everything that was going on in the world, it was just um, it was just too it was too identical, you know, just going to this undiscovered land where there's no human no no humans at present and just ob obliterating the local nature and and wildlife and you, you know i was like there has to be another way and and we're going to be we're going to be stuck in a loop shaking this tree that has no fruit if um because like children will be playing this game right now 
and learning this is this is normal this is fine this is fun and you know big reason of, of why we're in this situation is because of the way we've acted over hundreds of years even lockdown yeah, I thought it was really. I, I thought that film was really curious as well, John James. I thought it was really interesting, especially since you know at the time there was a lot of footage of Animal Crossing. And actually, this is a game that I haven't played, despite being a quite a prolific gamer in many respects. But I'd seen a lot of footage of Animal Crossing, and a lot of the footage of Animal Crossing was lots of things happening and lots of characters and creatures going everywhere and doing all sorts of things. Whereas yours was just that one shaking of that tree, and there was something so. Um, yeah, so kind of the ritual of that, the repetitive nature of that, the hypnotic nature of that as well, which I think was also in many ways relates to to your uh, work on Quake, uh, Alicia, because as a viewer of that performance, especially as of, of the sort of filmed performance of it, it is uh, hypnotic. It's it, You sort of get drawn into the 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 repetitive nature of it the the sort of um the kind of flow i guess of you going from from uh doing the worm dance to singing uh then to a sort of a cut to a close-up perhaps of the wood that's behind you or of the of the pond of the frog that's in the pond and then back to you to to start the worm dance again and then the singing and the and the sort of repetitive nature of that made it quite um yeah, made it quite a hypnotic and interesting experience. And also the the nails that you described um, hanging off the hat, um, which I thought was just what was wonderful. I thought it sort of creates like a, it almost creates like an aura around you. It's almost as if we can see the um, the sort of shamanistic, more than human connection that you're referring to in the work. It's almost as if that is that. It's almost as if that's what that is. It's, it's almost as if it's appeared like you might get in a, in a video game where a character is like powering up and they, they've got this kind of aura around them, right? Um, that's what that reminded me of. I think it was really interesting. And it took me a while to figure out what those little metal things were, the little, um, the nails. And it wasn't until I read the description, I realized they were the nails from your floorboard. And then that was kind of like, oh, they're like metal worms that have come out of the ground of your house. Um, and, and I almost sort of, kind of dead and that kind of dead really and sort of dangling and jingling and that yet your movement is bringing them back to life you see there's so many little different things going on in in just in that simple uh, repetitive movement um yeah absolutely fascinating uh, performance it really was i really loved it um i wondered though uh just to sort of slightly pivot this a little bit because this is like a, a podcast about cinema or about film practice about f- filmmaking i wonder about how what um what is the importance i suppose of of the filmmaking aspect to your to your work um i i, I if i'm right in what i'm sort of seeing on your website you you've almost like i think filmmaking is something that's that's maybe only fairly recently coming to your practice but did you sort of start more as a photographer or a performance and then has have built film into the practice and if that is the case has that changed the way you create or the the, the way that you think about the things that you're creating necessarily? Yeah. Um, I think that, the, you know, it is more recent. The videos that are on my website are more recent, but I've always made a video. I mean, I came from a theatre background and I did my BA in like 
drama and theatre arts. And then I went on to do this uh, course at Central, um, which wasn't royal at the time I was there. Um, <laughs> and that was called advanced theatre practice, but it was basically experimental theatre making. And then I started making stuff and people were like, this isn't theatre, this is performance art. And I was like, what's performance art? I didn't mm. even know what it was. Um, and through one of the things that they did at Central was they were like, you don't have to do an essay, a written essay. You can do a visual essay. Um, so I started making, and I had a, you know, a camcorder that my grandma used to film me on when I was a kid <laughs> and she'd given me it and like little tapes and in, in it and little screen that came out, <laughs> um, proper like nineties. And I made them all on that. And that I started to get into, you know, like cutting and editing. I wonder what software I would have even had. I don't even know. And then I got really into using that camera to film stuff and then getting, playing it back on the little flip screen that comes out of it and then filming on the camera on my laptop filming the little flip screen. Ah, interesting. And then uh, this was like 2012. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was all, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't put those on my, they're not public works, but it was all part of me. So I'd, I'd quite often film myself doing stuff in public spaces and then do that process or film other stuff. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, also after that course, funnily, I went to uh, someone I started working with was from the States and went back to the States. So then we started making work remotely. So filmmaking became just part of a performance process. And there's something about um, film which is different for me and it feeds obviously the entire as most artists everything feeds into everything whether no um, regardless of the discipline but there's something about um being able to really okay there's a few things one is in the editing process you can really play with things that you can't play with in performance and what I mean by that is that I can do something in a performance and I'm sort of even though I've created it if people receive it live we're all sharing the same space time and it's all going to go from beginning to end from minute one to 360 or whatever there's a sort of like a shared space-time fabric there and something you can do with film is to really alter that perception and play with that and I look and I'm starting more and more to understand that as looking at it as what is a neurodiverse aesthetic how can you slow things down how can you speed things up how can you pick on certain things that actually might translate and transmute into so many different things at the same time in your head that you can you can layer things in a certain way that you can't do in one single like live performance um words are sort of escaping me here a little bit there's more to what I'm trying to say but there's that 
there's also um, my process. Quite a lot of my work is, I don't, like I said before, I don't have the uh, end at the beginning, if you will. I don't have an idea of what it's going to look like. I make things and in the process of making it, that things get edited. So um, I will film something and I'll be like, right, I've got this bit of film. And quite often I'll film something because I'll either have a dream about it or have a thing when I'm just about to wake up, I'll get an image or I'll just be doing something and, and an image will flash to me or a feeling will flash and I'll go, I need to film that now. And I'll, I'll do that. And then I'll put it in software and then I'll edit it. I won't have an idea prior to that what I'm going to do with it. And that is and that is the process of, um, yeah, that is part of the process of editing it. Um, and, and then also <laughs> control is something that I don't know if that, it's not, maybe not, it's something that's worth, actually bringing up here because there is a control element controlling how people see something and controlling how you are seen especially if um you have not been able to control narratives around you or the way in which you do things is out of kilter with a neurotypical way of doing things and you're quite frankly quite sick of having everyone else's lens projected onto you so it's a way of taking that back as well. And there's something tricky about the neurodiverse aesthetic because it yet again, like it has the potential to commodify something and to be redactive. Is that what I mean? Like, you know, to make something um, sort of less dimensional than it is. Um, but it also, I think, you know, that, that medium just gives us, I don't want to say let's just take back control, <laughs> but also, you know, actually, I'm going to take that phrase back. Yeah, it gives us some control back of how we do and see things. Yeah, I think with a with a with a camera, you can you know direct the audience's gaze at what what they should, what you would like them to notice, what you can. And and in in some cases you can you can say this is what I'm interested in this is what I'm looking at why don't you look at this with me um, so yeah I think I think that's really interesting what you say about control you know and and the, thinking about duration and how long people would notice things for. Um, because uh, video is, people think of it as, as the video track and the audio track and that's it. But there's also like the time that is a third, um, a third not track, but medium or something that you play, you can play around with, like you said. So you can, it's, it's another, it's another, um, another element to the piece. And I, I imagine you, you were talking about looping. So if, if you showed something in a gallery, a video that's looping, thinking of more sort of video art pieces, it's, it's very different from sort of a, a film in a cinema or online where it, it, there's a start and an end. I quite like in art galleries where things loop and people can join it and stay for as long as they 
feel they need to and then leave and they might stay multiple times might start stay for half the duration yeah uh yeah totally and on that you know being able to play with time two pieces that i've got little snippets up on my website uh is a piece called itch and stick insect and in September, I went and did a residency in Brighton, actually, at the Anka, um, and they've got a barge, and they're great. And I had the barge for God, 10 days, and, and I just, you know, pretty much, I didn't live on it, but I was there like 12 hours a day. I absolutely loved that space. And, you know, I was thinking about the sort of animal, my animal self, um, and th- in both of those videos, I'm basically just doing filming myself doing an action and then fucking around with the speed and the duration in the editing process. And it's so easy straight away, um, just by altering our time frames and how we how we move through space time, so speeding things up or slowing things down how all of a sudden it looks quite animal, what I'm doing, how we start to attribute animal attributes or characteristics, we start to see the human body in, a, uh, in another way. And that's something that I've always worked with as an AFAB person, how to redirect, not redirect, but like how to take back, how to like, be read in a different way. How can I change how people read me? And quite often, um, and, and what think, things are projected onto me, and that is that in itself is an exercise in failure. <laughs> and looking at like queer arts of failure, but also like the aesthetics of that and what that looks like. And, and so I've always sort of tried to been doing that you know, ever for 10, 11 years. But, you know, looking at this and, and being able to have this software, like, you know, going to editing programs and actually change, because humans experience time in a certain way because our lifespans are X amount within reason, right? And everything else experiences time in a different way because lifespans are different. So things therefore just move through the world differently is how I see it. Um, I don't know if that's a real scientific fact. Um, but yeah, so so for example, there's one one of the videos, Stick Insect, I, there's a big pole in the middle of the barge and I um, just have sort of gripped my knees and hands around it and I'm sort of squatting uh, the, on, on the floor but with my knees and hands around it and then I just pull myself up with my hands and move, you know, move my hands up the pole and then back down again and just by making that slightly quicker it's quite insect it's quite staccato and it's and it's the the actions of something like a stick insect that would move up and down a stick and then the other thing I um, film myself on a different pole which is wrapped in rope on the same boat um, I film my bum naked just humping it and just by speeding that up a little bit there's there's and the, the shot is just my bum 
And just by speeding that up, you know, the rhythm of sex for different animals is different. And the connotations of the rope and the scratching poles is something more feline about this. Um, and yeah, so, and my body is my material. Um, I think very much as a someone who um, is dyspraxic, that for me is like, I think I, it's very interesting for me, the way I experience the world. It's not very, the way in which neurotypical people physically do the experience and move through the world is not the way I do it. And therefore where I I've been othered and therefore I think I've witnessed, I witnessed myself in relation to other people because I'm not like them. I'm the other. Um, yeah. So, so it's material. I wonder whether if I wasn't, within a neurotypical society, it would be interesting, maybe not to me, if that, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I thought that, that's just completely fascinating listening to you talk about all that. It's really interesting. And um, yeah, I, I watched those those videos of you um, performing the stick insect and the, uh, and so on. And it, it was fascinating. What's that, what that's, what that's reminding me of is there's a, um, there's a really interesting idea within the world of, of disability studies, um, and it's particularly the, the writing of Alison Kafer, I'm thinking of here. And she talks about um, this idea of crip time, of like there being a kind of different way of experiencing and, uh, and processing time for people who are disabled and that might be people who are physically disabled might be uh, neurodivergence or whatever it is um and it can be as simple as uh you know a journey taking longer for somebody who has a physical disability right um and how therefore there is there's more, there has to be different expectations for the amount of time that a, a a journey to the shops might take for somebody who is um, non-disabled and someone who is disabled and how that just has an up on effect to all the rest of the kind of blocks of time that somebody might have in on a given day or an even framework of time and that's a very simple example of that but it, it it's it's much more complex and complicated than that as well and it's really interesting that it's a similar process for neurodivergent people for autistic people whereby there is a there is a a differing experience of time and one of the most wonderful things about cinema is it is a very or film i guess as a video art is that it's it as you were mentioning before john james it's very intimately connected with time the time frame the duration of a piece the time of a single shot the, the length of a shot or the briefness of it um the specific times when cuts come into the kind of um the footage that is filmed so time is like the kind of they're almost at like the essence really of how film makes its meaning um and so it suddenly becomes this wonderful tool for exploring these different ways of experiencing time um and uh yeah it's interesting and then one other thought also struck me as well as Alicia and I don't mean to say this in a way that, that, that this is necessarily a contradiction and I don't want this to sound like I'm suggesting this is a contradiction but what's interesting is that you've got this um interest here on like kind of shamanistic practice animism connecting with the natural and animal world in a way um which is which is brilliant and fascinating and interesting but then using what is really quite um contemporary and modern technology in order to 
discover that in a way, like using film and editing um, these technologies to help you, and I guess then by extension, a viewer to reconnect with the more kind of natural, maybe ancient animalistic sort of element of ourselves. So there's an interesting, there's almost an interesting tension there, isn't there, I suppose, between the modern technologies of film and editing and the kind of ancient, but but I think it's not necessarily a contradiction or a tension. I think it's more of a complement of the two things working well together. Yeah. I mean, totally. And time isn't linear. So what is ancient and what is contemporary are all tangled up in one another. And therefore, you know, yeah, time and and bringing the ancient to the contemporary and and mixing those with the um, use of film and editing and, and modern technology and contemporary technology, if you will. And there's something about that which inherent in that is the belief that time is linear, which it isn't. And therefore these things are inherently connected to one another. And that's why it's sort of a process of remembering and forgetting. And that is the danger of sort of this new age spiritualism that either um, totally rejects what is of the now, you know, the, this technology um, which isn't useful um, and or it sort of prioritizes it and commoditizes commodifies the you know uh, natural world and in a very sort of shallow way feigns to connect back to it just to basically um, power capitalism and its gain for the individual and you know, a lot of the sort of teachings I am, um, you know, work with shamanic practitioners in the UK and, and it's very much like, how do we, we need, we need shamanic and animist practice back in order to make sure everything doesn't die. And we need to be, get real. Like we are modern humans. Like we can't go back to the earth. We can't like, there's too many of us, it doesn't work. We don't, we don't, you know, we've forgotten most of those skills. But shamanism is very, very useful. Shamanic practice is very useful. So, how do we practice it for the people that we are now? And I'll sort of just caveat, I should always remember to caveat in that shamanism, in that is a word that was, is, is of the Evenki people, which is modern day Siberia. And that is the uh, word that they use to describe the the title of their sh- um, spiritual leaders, and I think it was sort of a, a Russian explorer, you know, anthropologist, um, went and and discovered in adverted commas these people practicing this, and because you know shamanic practice had died in the West very very long ago this is the word that people started going oh wow isn't this like weird and new but also ancient and actually there's evidence of shamanic practice in you know in the sort of cave paintings that are 33,000 years old in France and 
it is very much believed to be the first a, a global spiritual practice that humans have always practiced and so we use this word just because that is the sort of a, that's what it started to be understood as um so it's not our word and shamanism is the practice of animism animism being the belief and the knowledge that everything is alive um so yeah in that and what we're talking about film what we're talking about softwares what we're talking about documentation how you share that internet computers what we were saying about the nails on the hat from our animist point of view that everything is alive all of those things, all of those things have energy within them. And the myth of human supremacy is to put this, make this hierarchy as to what's alive and what feels more. And it's just all different, just how different things experience time differently, different things experience consciousness differently. And consciousness is a spectrum. And we're just at one end of it where we're self-aware. But there's also collective consciousness, which like trees are very intelligent at right but we've skewered it to be an up and down when actually it's just a big web um yeah so for me it's totally vital to be practicing all these things at the same time i think um something that something that just came to mind and it's come it's been in, in my thoughts a bit while we've been talking and, and in, even in the notes i made that it's all about sort of taxonomies and like putting labels on things and categorizing everything and that's that that's what we've been taught we're supposed to do like I'm a, I always think about how <laughs> when we're taught language and we're little for some reason in picture books in our, our kids picture books we think like cow is opposite to horse and stuff like that like we work in these weird pairings and binaries and this isn't that this is this and um, I guess I'm quite interested in, and it seems like things that we're talking about is like breaking down these categories and seeing how everything is more alike and more connected than than we would imagine, even even time periods and and, and software versus um, nature and and all this stuff. It, um, I think even like the labels that we use in terms of you talked you talked about a, a spectrum of consciousness and how it's all it's all over the place rather than linear as, as we've sort of tried to perceive it um reminds me of sort of how some people imagine autism to be low functioning at one end and high functioning at the other when these are sort of very arbitrary um dismissive terms and and i guess the 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 truth is a lot messier in in a really nice way than than we can just put a single label on yeah and i think there's a lot to be said in that about we've got this you know under the system of neurotypical white supremacist um capitalist system that we live in and paradigm that we live in that this is like there is 
that is in itself binary. There is a right way to be and everything outside of that is wrong. And actually, if we resist that and we, we, we refuse that, then another, and there isn't just one other alternative, but another alternative is that everything has something to teach everything. So yeah, everything is is very similar and from the same source, but everything's also, and I use this word on purpose, like wildly different. And we have, everything has the capacity to teach something. But as it stands, it's like a certain person who has certain, you know, like ways of being has to teach everyone else how to be. And, you know, like you say, like certain people on the autistic spectrum are not, are less, are not high functioning. They cannot function. Well, what the fuck does that mean? Like they're alive and they're breathing and they're fucking functioning. Like that doesn't mean anything. It means that they don't function in that, you know, within that really oppressive system. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, you know, what do we mean when we say the word functioning? What functions in particular are we prioritizing in that respect? And like the functions that we seem to sort of cherish are the ones that um, allow us to, I don't know, get jobs and enter the sort of capitalist stream or or to marry the right person or whatever it is or be social. Um, whereas there are there are different functions that seem to sort of have a less less of a value to us i guess um uh it because they don't seem to serve as you say they don't sort of, to sort of serve that capitalist notion um in, in any kind of uh neat fashion in a way i suppose and the, and the whole concept of there being high and low as well has always been like well where do you draw the line is there a middle is there a medium functioning <laughs> like where does where do we plot that exactly what do you mean by high and low it's ridiculous really um and I'm really interested in, in uh, you've mentioned it a few times, um, and it seems to be really key to your practice, Alicia, but I'm really interested in this idea of the of the more than human. And this is something I've, I've, I've come across a bit in my own research. Um, so just for your context and for anyone listening who doesn't, who doesn't know, but I um, my research was to do with the connections between autism and the genres of science fiction and fantasy. I was really interested in, in how autism manifests or represents or is expressed in those, in those genres in particular. And of course, sci-fi and fantasy is always about the, the more than human or the different to human. Um, and there's a very complex relationship going on there between kind of autism, neurodiversity, and these kinds of, figures aliens and robots or whatever it might be which is a, a very messy conversation but th th it's interesting but then i yeah i started to think about this idea of the more than human because this does come up a little bit with when we talk start thinking about things like um uh what science fiction and like cyborgs and the cyborg theories um and the cyborg manifesto in particular donna haraway and how um in those contexts the more than human seems to be something to do with like transcending the human or going beyond the human or, or getting to the next step by sort of incorporating technologies or whatever it might be or uploading our consciousness into the internet or whatever it is um and yet when i then started to think about the more than human more in the way that you're exploring it and i came across this with there's a philosopher called erin erin manning i don't know if you're familiar with erin 
Manning, um, but she talks a bit, quite a bit about the more than human, but in this context, in terms of um, there being this sort of connection with things that are outside of the human realm, rather than it being something that's like an evolution or a stepping beyond of the human. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I found a, a quote from, from Erin Manning that I thought was just quite interesting um, uh, that I just pulled out from my notes. She says, um, this is in her book, um, which is called Always More Than One, I think it's called. Um, and she says, the autistic dwells in an ecology of practices that resonate, no, sorry, an ecology of practices that creates resonances across scales and registers of life, both organic and inorganic, not solely in the so-called human realm. And that was always, I've always found that really interesting and it helps me to sort of understand as somebody who is not autistic, that kind of, sometimes you find that kind of intimate connection that autistic people can have with nature, animals, or also with in, uh, inorganic or objects. Um, and yeah, and I see quite a lot of that, I think, echoing up in, in Quake and some of your other, other pieces of work that we've been discussing. Yeah, thanks for that, because that is is totally vital, isn't it? It's like, yeah, cool, we can like incorporate all this new stuff into getting like better at life or transcending the human and, and being, you know, but how are we going to do that if we don't have really ancient life forms like water <laughs> or worms or moss, you know, and I'd, I've been, um, my new, I've, I've got a piece coming up at the Whitstable Biennale in June and I'm looking at um, moss a lot. Uh, in relation to the synthetic um so it's and and you know there's a brilliant um author and scientist and bryologist which is someone who specializes in moss that's a new word to me um and it's called robin wall Kimmerer. she she wrote the fame the more famous book um braiding sweetgrass but she also has written a book called gathering moss and um she talks about how you know moss is one of the most ancient life forms and the idea is that there was algae in water and maybe the water splashed up put some algae on a rock it stayed there it dried in the sun and that was actually the first step of life out of water was moss and she talks about how moss functions entirely collectively you know they cannot Con they can't be without being uh, in a collect. You know, they think and breed entirely collectively, and actually, this is a wisdom. In and and actually, it might be old and ancient, but actually, they they they've done life. They're pretty successful at life. Basically, they've been doing life, managed to keep life going for so long, much longer than we have. So. Actually, if there is going to be someone who's better at life, <laughs> if we're going to look at things in that term, then maybe those these things that have survived so long. Yeah, so it really baffles me, the, that, this concept. And I'm not, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I sort of have always naturally been not into technology and new technology. And in my partner, that's that that is their field. It's quite interesting. Like what like it is so to me is a bit like, but that is that's that's so 
that's just there's so much already going on that's so fascinating that I'd like to be connecting with like worms and moss. Why am I? Why would I do that? <laughs> just a quick note. I there's somebody I met fairly recently, a guy called uh, John Biddulph. His name is, and he makes music out of moss. He's autistic as well, and he um, he connects up. He's got all these kind of like. I think they're called moogs and uh, like synths and various wires and stuff. It's very technological, but then he gets a bit of moss, connects the wires in there. And what he's doing is he's reading the electrical signals off that, off that is naturally generated out of that moss, feeding it through his machines and then turning it into sound and then sort of re, you know, looping it and finding beats and rhythms in that to create bits of music. It's brilliant. It's fascinating. And it's really weird as well. It sounds like when he plays it, it sounds like you're in the depths of some cave somewhere and it's all like water. It's very aquatic and very, oh, it's really cool. Um, again, if I can find the link, I'll put a, a link in the, in the description of this podcast because, um, yeah, I think people should check that out. It's good. <laughs> That's great. I, I just would like to say there, no, very dismissive of technology. As I said before, it's all happening at the same time and it is all very interesting. Um, but yeah, there's there's just so, there's not a hierarchy in it. And I suppose some people are interested in different things and my brain doesn't really get that as naturally, if you will. Um, you know, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't intuit technology um, and it's not drawn towards it. Um, yeah. Um, something came to my mind just then that we discussed on a previous episode of the podcast. Um, Alex, who frequently is is on the podcast, he mentioned um, this theory when we were talking about David Lynch and matter out of place. Um, and I was just thinking about more more about like categories and you know where things belong. And Alicia, when you were talking about moss and how like you know, it's really amazing. And then I was just thinking about how annoyed people get at moss growing on their roof and they have to clean it off. And, you know, like, they're not just really, you know, living with with the world and, and trying trying to, I guess that, that's a form of control as well. It's like, it's also creating this false binary of, you know, that's the wild and it stays outside and this is, where we live and we stay inside. I've been thinking a lot about gardens recently in a very similar way, how, how um, some people um, keep their gardens as, as, as neat and as possible and as kind of pest free as possible and weed free as possible. It's interesting as well to think about your worms, Alicia, and how, um, you know, they're sort of lumped in the same categories like slugs and they, they, all these these creatures that people don't want in their gardens necessarily. And yet we have to rethink that because, of course, they are part of a really important ecology of like of creating a, a living biosphere that works within that kind of natural space, whereas actually all we want is just a really tidy lawn uh, with no, you know, no animal life on it at all. I, I actually think of thinking about this a lot because, you know, that it's a thing, right? Because the, because the ecosystem's fucked, there's like, for example, where I live in southeast London, there we can't really have hedge. There aren't any hedgehogs. So the hedgehogs would eat the slugs, right? And even if, if we introduce hedgehogs, they'd get run over, right? So that is why we are out of kilter. And that's why slugs are a 
problem in gardens when because then they do eat all the green stuff because there's nothing you know like there's there's not a uh, an ecosystem a balanced ecosystem and i do think that that is like something to do with living with the trauma that we have like disconnecting to the rest of the world is a trauma and we are um avoiding it and we all are living with the consequences of it in, and we're all blind to it and we're all refusing to to acknowledge that pain and it's incredibly painful and it's a power loss we've disconnected ourselves to the most powerful to an incredibly powerful thing sort of um taken it's like unplugging yourself from the grid right and so how do you how do you deal with trauma quite often you just replicate it so as to normalize it and so we replicate these like neat and tidy things so we pretend to ourselves that's what we like but we like things like that we like things in grids they they make us feel like yeah we like you know like forests that all have the same tree well no we don't like you know we like gardens that are all neat and tidy no we don't what we really actually like is walking around in ancient forests that really gets people off and like but the I mean, where are they? There's hardly any of them left. So we have to console ourselves on a very deep level. This, I'm sure there's a, a psychological, you know, phrase for what this is, right? It's sort of what, what uh, I can't think. But, you know, when you, you basically convince yourself that, like, the hell that you're in is a heaven. <laughs> That's what Matt makes me think. I think uh, just to just, just jump back into a bit of uh, John James's uh, work, just to, before we round off. Um, the other video I wanted to, to to mention, John James, that I found really interesting of yours. I think it's probably your most recent one that's on 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 your website. Is the the peeling tatties uh, video where you are <clears throat> uh, re repeatedly peeling potatoes, and we have like kind of two screens we have you peeling the potatoes and then there's like a i think a shot a shot from in the water as the potatoes from that the potatoes are sitting in um and i think that that little video was really and then there's a there's, you've got have a sort of voiceover as well on there and i think that video is a really was really interesting in sort of tying a few of the things together that we've been talking about because there's a there's there's something that's perhaps quite mundane there but is is through repetitive ritual action is turned into something more profound. There's the brilliant bit halfway through where you sort of link the peeling of the potatoes to um, the, the kind of practices of, of, of witches um, as a kind of the, the, the nature of that kind of repetitive household work as being a kind of witch-like ritual. Um, and which I thought was fascinating and really interesting. And it suddenly what that does halfway through the videos, it turns this, footage into something it just sort of gives it a new charge it doesn't change it in any way except that it just gives its new this new aura um uh i was formulating a kind of quite a good question out of all of that but i, <laughs> I can't remember what that was now but like yeah i just thought that that was an really interesting uh video and, and, and i feel i think it's fairly recent i think it only went up last year um so i don't know if you want to just say a few words about that john james yeah i think um yeah, it, it was it was last year, um, 
and the the second shot is yeah it's quite a, a cheap underwater camera that i put at the bottom of the bucket stuck it to the bottom of the bucket um and yeah it was it was kind of um it was it was like like a uh, alicia was saying it's one of those like remembering um moments through like a physical act um because yeah so 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 much of what we enjoyed and and you know what comes natural to us we we shut off and we don't don't access again and i was thinking you know i i think i was talking about in therapy about this peeling potatoes and and I, I thought to myself, you know, how long has it been since I actually sat down and peeled a load of potatoes like that? We had potatoes for days, but um, yeah. So like, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really like interesting experience just to sit on the floor of my flam, peel these potatoes, and um, I think it it also relates to the stuff we've been talking about time and. Um, it's almost like time travel, but you're not going anywhere. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely loved that piece. I thought it was great on, on so many levels. But, you know, on that time travel thing, it's but we do go places, you know, like we we diminish our imagination all the time. And, you know, within in an animist perspective, like that you when you like do a shamanic journey, you're lying down like you know, essentially like going into a different state, which is a little bit more like dreaming, but you are traveling elsewhere, you know, and, and other places and other realms are um, as important and as real. This is just like meat that we're, that we're just, you know, carrying around the meat of our bodies in one place. There's loads of other places. Um, but yeah, there was just something really beautiful about, well, first of all, the way that it was shot and the composition of it. And at first when you, so it's sort of, um, you know, for the benefit of the tape, if you will, the, the, the screen is black and then the um, there's a video which is smaller than the screen. <laughs> is that how you say it? Um, that is going on. So it's framed by a black background. And then there's a voiceover and you've got the text at the bottom uh, which says what you're saying. And that original video that's little on the screen is of, you know, the top camera of you peeling the potatoes. And then the another little thing comes in, I think at the, the you know, slightly southeast of your video of you peeling the potatoes of that camera of, uh, at the bottom of the water. With, and I was like, what the fuck is that? I was like, I really like this sort of, grainy blurriness of it like I don't know what it is and I like it because it, there's there's some there's a texture there's a feeling um to it there's something really visceral because you like and it it goes again to looking at beyond like what is real and what is a visual representation what is you know it's like in the first in the original little the first video you see I see some hands and a peeler and a bucket and some water and potatoes. Like I know all those things, they all make sense to me in categories. And then this blurry thing comes in, which is more of like the feel of it. And then when you go on to talk about starchy water and then 
and then it's just great when you do keep cutting back to the camera of a viewer uh, that's at the bottom of the water and you start to like and that's the thing in sort of shamanism is to shape shift so it's very important um in in sort of going into these places and shape shifting into other life forms so being at the bottom and like and 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 feeling the water the water gets starchier and you're sort of in it it was really nice um but then also the the thing that you said david about the meant the connection to um healers and witches and i'm doing a, a lot of research around this as well what is our ancestry and what is our ancestry as European people and, you know, this, this um, colonizing mentality has meant that anything indigenous is seen as, um, you know, less worthy, less civilized, something, you know, that needs to be upgraded into something neater and tidier and more technological. Um, and, yeah, there's this great academic, which you probably have heard of, called Max Dashu. Um, and she um, has been basically researching since the 70s. Um, and I'll send you the, the website. I think it's called Suppressed History. So she's been researching healers, women, and women throughout the ages and women as healers. In this, and she's just got all this amazing information. And what she says is, um, ecclesiastical, is that how you say it? Like priests' uniforms and lots of other religious uniforms. And prior to that, you know, like any sort of healer, quite often you have like a hat, like a long hat with long bits coming off it and like a long dress essentially because a lot of, and her research says, and other research says that a lot of um, this transcending and going into, like you say in your video, John James, um, commune with the spirits was around domestic chores that women were given. So people would use these, women would use these domestic chores, go into repetition cycles, um, you know, go into altered states of consciousness. So then actually these, like it became sacred, like what women wore whilst they were doing these chores these domestic things and turning them into ritual and turning them into ceremony that became the like uniform to practice spirituality. Like it's spirituality and domestic chores, like have this shared origin in terms of like costume and what we wear. Um, so I found that really interesting. And also yeah, I, I don't know. I never really put the two things properly together in what you said. It really reminded me of this, um, you know, Isabel Allende. She's a Chilean author and she, one of her books, House of Spirits. And the sort of main character of that um, is a sort of uh, aristocratic woman who just kind of floats around the house doing not very little but communing with spirits. Um and yeah, it was it was just a really nice connection. And also, you know, for you to be connecting with that beyond these categorizations of gender and like actually you claiming your connection to that because we, you know, then you can get into quite turfy <laughs> territory when you're looking at history of healers and witches. Um, and yeah, there, there is a... Uh, 
in order to free ourselves from all all these um, oppressive systems, we also have to free our whilst yeah free ourselves from healers being just women. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, I don't know where I was going now. <laughs> but yeah, the, the 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 domestic and the and the spiritual and this kind of like ritual and repetitiveness. It, it, yeah, it's just something I've always been really interested in. When when you mentioned that Chilean book uh, author recently, though, just now there was um, there's another book called like Like Water for Chocolate, where um, it's Mexican and 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 the the main character has um it's like magical realist and she can like she can uh transmit emotions and feelings through through what she's cooking for everyone and each chapter starts with a recipe it's really nice yeah that's lovely um yeah, that's lovely. And yeah, the, 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 I really like the way you were describing the two different cameras, actually, Alicia, the one that's like filming the, the peeler in the hands and the potatoes and then the one that's under the water. It almost it does, it submerges us, it immerses us into that potato-y world in a way. I like that. We've gone, we've gone kind of more than potato, I suppose, in a way. Um, like, okay, listen, we, we have been recording for quite a while now, so we'll, we will wrap things up. But I would just want to say, Alicia, do you want to say a couple of words about um, what it is you're currently working on and, and what you've got coming up um, soon? Yeah, plugging. Yeah, yeah, plug. Yeah, I'll plug away. So I am feverishly working away in the studio at the moment because I am part of the Whitstable Biennale, and that runs from the... 11th to the 19th of June um, and for that I'm, I'm making an installation um, and a film and a soundscape and they'll all be showing um, for that duration and that'd be really fun you know I don't know if you're familiar with the Whitstable Biennale but it's great it's sort of the um, numerous buildings across the town get activated by artists. I think there's about 25 artists showing work, which is cool. So that's in June. Also at the same time, opening on the 18th of June, I'm in a group exhibition at Giant Gallery in Bournemouth. Um, that was uh, an old department store that's been set up by Stuart Semple. And I'm part of a collective called The Healing Collective, which is brought together by a curator called Becca Pelly Fry. And we've, uh, you know, the artists in the collective all have healing practices at the core of their work. Um, and that work manifests in lots of different ways, video, sound, performance, or, you know, all the art, collage, painting. So all the artists have different disciplines, but we all have that in common um and i'll be showing film and um one of my films on my website 17 which is um basically lots of close-ups of worms and i interacting um i'm sort of yeah I'm, I'm not remaking it but i'm gonna be using bits of that and making more and putting some of my text work, recorded text poetry stuff and a soundscape with it and showing a print 
and showing some other tiny little things there. And that runs from the 18th of June to the sometime in August. I should know this. I think the 15th, maybe the end of August. Um, so that's in Bournemouth. That should be good. I'm also performing on May the 7th at um, an event called Performance Platform. And that's in Ealing in West London. And that's great. That's a double bill um, with another couple of artists who are great. Yes, I think that's it. It's just already loads and, and a lot. <laughs> An incredibly busy summer coming up. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. Though. It's, it's wonderful to hear that so much of that is going on. So, yeah, I hope hopefully uh, this episode should should go out, I think, before before that stuff happens. So people, uh, listeners should be able to go and check it out if they if they would like to. And I would very much encourage them to. So that's uh, that's a really nice place to, to finish things off. So thank you very much. Um, thanks to John James and to John James's cat as well, who have, is peeking up every now and again um for for joining us there and an extra special thank you to Alicia that was a really wonderful conversation it's been a, a real privilege to to sit and, and watch your work and then uh, and then talk to you about it it's been really great um so thank you very much for coming along yeah thank you thank you guys so much it's been it's been a really great conversation and really great to engage with your work as well John James thanks thank you very much lovely we'll we'll wrap it up there thanks everybody goodbye thank you bye you have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.